This is Neon Radio, episode 100, with your host, Nick Onken. Welcome to Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onken, fashion and lifestyle photographer for today's top brands, performers, and game changers. On this podcast, we explore the body, mind, and soul of the creative entrepreneur, bringing you inspiring guests to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. Hello, and welcome to Neon Radio, formerly Shop Talk Radio. Just about this time, you should be listening to the voice of Nick Onken, but you're not. Instead, for the 100th episode, we thought we would turn the tables. And today, I am going to interview Nick Onken about his creative process. Who am I? Well, I'm Stacey London, Nick Onken's girlfriend. Who better to ask the tough questions than I? So, just to tell you about what we're going to do today, we're going to talk to Nick about really his life and how he got to where he is. I mean, starting from his life in Seattle as a kid through his struggle to learn his own identity independent of his environment, how he got out of Seattle, how he traveled the world, what opened his eyes, what made him think differently about what he saw and why photography instead of graphic design actually became the road that he took how he moved from L.A. to New York, and how he got his groove in the industry, and what he learned about finding his own self-validation, the difference between self and ego through learning about emotional intelligence when your career doesn't always take the path that you think it's going to. Expectation can sometimes get in the way of inspiration, and I think that one of the things that you'll learn is also about why this podcast was started, but how it's evolved into NEON radio instead of shop talk. Part of the reason is that Neon is a mission. It's a movement that Nick has created about his passion for creativity and also inspiration, how to harness it, not just how to think about it, not just how to have it, but how to use it as a practical tool in your own creative process and entrepreneurship. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my boyfriend, beautiful inside and out. And your favorite podcaster, Nick Onkin. Nick Onkin, here we are, the hundredth episode of what was formerly known as Shop Talk Radio and now Neon. You are not interviewing, you are being interviewed by me, Stacey London. How does that feel? Feels amazing. I feel honored to have you interview me. Well, tell me a little bit about this. The 100th episode. So when did you actually start Shop Talk Radio? And then we'll talk about why you decided to change the name. Yeah. So I started Shop Talk Radio, I guess it's a couple of years now. Our mutual friend, Mr. Lewis Howes, interviewed me. Shout out, Lewis. What? What? Lewis Howes? <laughs> <laughs> So he interviewed me a couple of years ago and I thought it was so much fun and I didn't know much about podcasting and our uh, production guys from Freedom Podcasting were there kind of talking about what they could do and how to make it easier, the, the production side of it. And I was like, well, if I can have that taken care of, I've got a lot of amazing people in my friends and network that I would just love to interview and, and distill the the things that they've learned and share that with with 
the people that would follow me. Yeah. So when you say that, I mean, first of all, two years ago, you, you actually started a podcast before it became the thing. I mean, now it's like there's a zillion podcasts that people can subscribe to. But, but you know, you were really at the forefront of that. What exactly did you want to be able to ask your friends and people in your network about? I mean, what is the essence of Shop Talk Radio for you? Well, the, the essence of the podcast is to help people take their creativity, business and life to the next level. And so I want to interview creatives at the top of their game who've built something big, who have, because there's something, there's, there's a certain thing that it takes to get from A to B and to be able to to push past fears and to push past a lot of the things that hold most people back from doing what they want to do. I wanted to go out and talk to people who have done that and Mm -hmm. who have, built something big to break that down, unpack it and see what it took from them to, to build that, you know, and especially, especially the creative world, I think, because the creative journey is like a hard, it's, it's hard. It's always up and down, especially I'm learning that now. And it's something that is, is it, it's a journey to get there. And the journey takes a lot of patience as I've, I've learned along the way. And because you have to keep practicing your craft and practicing and practicing and practicing until your work gets commercially viable till somebody actually wants to hire you for it and pay you money. And there's a lot of variables that come in between that, you know, between paying your rent and having a relationships and family and everything under the sun. And yeah. so you have to figure out how to, how to put the puzzle pieces together. And so I wanted to go to the top people and, and find out how they've done it. I mean, I guess there's a couple of things that, that come out of that. I mean, first, I guess my question would be creativity is such a broad word, right? So when you talk about creatives and, and, and interviewing all sorts of creatives, are there certain common themes when it comes to overcoming fear or managing that, that, you know, that process between art and commerce, you know, how to deal with your family and relationships when you're trying to become a successful artist. Are there certain things that all of these interviews have had in common? Uh, there's, there's a handful of characteristics and, um, it's funny cause I just put out, um, if you go to the website, seven celebrity success secrets. And it's kind of exactly this kind of question put in as like, what did I learn from all these hundred interviews of all these people? You know, what, what are these commonalities? A lot of them is the the biggest one is the mental game Mm. and being able to not let fear run your decisions and keep pushing past the things that keep you from creating. I think the resistance, I don't know if you've heard of the the book, The War of Art. Mm-hmm. I talk about that a lot because Stephen Pressfield, he talks about this thing called the resistance, which keeps us, it's all the distractions. It's, it's everything from, you know, laziness to getting distracted with busy work versus actually productive work or um, procrastination is a huge one. So things like that, that actually keep us from the act of creating. And as an artist, the only th- the the biggest thing that separates the amateurs from the pros is the ones that actually do mm-hmm. and keep doing and keep doing, keep practicing. And I think that's been a huge common theme, maybe even bigger than the mental game, but the mental game you have to have to actually like, get off your ass and do it. Exactly. And so the people that, you know, the everybody who's built something big has just pushed through and done it. And in the words of Nike, they just do it. And I think that's one of the biggest things 
I think there's an element of giving back as well that I've seen a common theme and the people that, that give back end up growing their, what they attract into their lives and their careers. I think that's huge. I'm trying to remember all of them, but you can check it out. Um, but those are three of the top. Right. The and top there, ones. I, I mean, I guess I was asking more, what, what are the ones that affected you the most? And, and it does sound to me like the mental game and the ability to do the work, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of science that actually suggests you get better at something, you know, just the more you practice it. So it takes an incredible amount of mental and physical motivation in order to continue to be creative without, let's say, the accolades of the public, right, before your work is really known. And then, you know, to me, it also seems that, you you know, this idea of having to push through means not listening to either voices inside your head or voices outside your head, <laughs> other people telling you you can't or you're not good enough. You have to believe in your art in order for, for in, in some sense, for it to be successful. And the idea of success, I mean, how would you define that? You know, is it just having your work noticed or bought or is it is it maybe never, you know, achieving some huge level of fame, but feeling like you fulfilled your purpose in your life? I mean, who, who decides? I think that's up to you as an artist. And I think that success is determined by you, but I think fulfillment is a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. And it's something I just heard. It was a Tony Robbins actually interview where he talked about the, the difference between it's success and fulfillment and fulfillment is, has nothing to do with monetary or necessarily notoriety. It's more about how are you fulfilled from the inside? And that comes from giving and growing. And I think, you know, in the world of art and it, you know, if you can be fulfilled creating from the inside, just because you love it, you know, and I think that's what I've gone back through. And one of the podcasts that I did in the, uh, it was a 15 part series in how to create a career in art. Uh, well, the first one was find your why. And I think having a passion for the actual craft is huge and that's the fulfilling part. And that fulfilling part is going to drive you through all the ups and downs and, you know, learning what you need to learn and doing everything that it takes. And, you know, I think there is the balance of, the commercial side and being able to make money with your art so that you which can, you would refer to as success as opposed to fulfillment. Um, I think success is a bit of both, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in the, my, in my point of view, my point of view is like being able to make enough money to, you know, sufficiently live in New York city, which is a different ball game. Um, but also being fulfilled with the stuff that I'm creating, with, with the work that I'm creating, you know, sometimes that's, there's art and there's commerce. You do jobs for the money so that you have the money to do the projects that you want to do, that you care about, you know, personally and creatively. And that to me is the fulfillment part, you know, and then add in the other side, the balance of the rest of it, having amazing relationships and friendships and the people that surround you. That's huge for me in the world of fulfillment, I love having friends that are inspiring to me in my world, in my sphere, um, mm-hmm. that are also doing big things. And because that just keeps us going and, and friends that are nice people, you know, like we've talked about it's, it's, I think there's a certain vibration in the way that it's, it's a synergetic thing when you, when you surround yourself with the right people. So that's a big element of fulfillment 
And I think giving back is another element of fulfillment. And I think all these things create the pillar of what, uh, what neon is all about, which we'll talk about, I'm sure in a little bit, Mm -hmm. but you know, and I think having, having an amazing relationship and girlfriend, Uh-huh. Like Stacy London <laughs> <laughs> is. If you guys didn't know, that's right. Now that's out. That guy gets that cat's out uh, of the bag. That cat's out of the bag. <laughs> Having my girlfriend interview me for the hundredth uh, episode, I think, is pretty awesome. And I love what she's all about in the world. Well, thank you, B. I mean, she's Stacy. Here is she's a rock star in her own in her own light and doing a lot of things to change the world, which is completely inspiring to me. Well, thank you. But I want I want to concentrate on you. Um, I there's a couple things that I want to ask you about. I mean, well, well I mean, before sorry, before yes, that, go, I, go, go, I go. say that because I think that's important to the fulfillment aspect of life. And I think when you have a partner that that spurs you and inspires you in life and in creativity, and and you guys can support each other, I think that's that's a huge element. That's a piece of the pie for me of fulfillment. So. Good. I'm glad. I agree with that a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. Just, I mean, not for nothing. I'll just throw my, my two cents in. Yes, I think that's very important. But, you know, there's so much about what happened to you to lead you to this point that I want to get to. You know, there's a lot of stuff to talk about in, in how this podcast has, you know, informed your work and it's informed your relationships because you've had friends and people on the podcast have become better friends for being on the podcast. But I want to go back to before the podcast, right? You had this idea to do it um, after meeting Lewis, but what drives this curiosity of yours? I mean, it's one thing to want to be an artist and to study the principles of being creative or to be, you know, artistic or the rules of discipline and, you know, mental fortitude. But what drives the curiosity? When did that start and how did it get you here? Yeah, great question. I think at the time that I started the podcast, I was there's there's a couple of things here. So First thing is when I started the podcast, I was going through the emotional intelligence leadership training that we've talked about out in LA with Lewis. And I think that opened my world and expanded my mind into a different sphere of um, consciousness and how the mind works and how we, it's a, it's a different perspective on how fears kind of run can run the way that we make decisions and the way that we make decisions creates the, the takes the crazy actions that we take to create the results that we want in life. Right. Mm. So that's a direct correlation with the creative entrepreneur like journey, you know, and how we decide to do what we want to do, how we go about life. So I've it kind of spurred this journey to, learn what that is for other people. And, and that, so that kind of created a whole aspect to the podcast mm. is the mental side of it. And mm. I'm always curious about how people have done it mentally, because that is like the, that's the key to the, what for me, the biggest key to success is being able to master your mind. So since then I've become fascinated with things like neuroscience and how, how all that works and how does that play into your creativity and meditation obviously has been a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I guess maybe I'm I'm more asking about that we should talk a little bit about your journey because I think that 
you know, your whole life up to now is sort of symbolic of the things that you've, you ask of other people, you ask, you know, other people about, I mean, you did not grow up in New York city. You did not grow up with parents who were artists and like, you just sort of fell into the life that you knew you had to fight in in a lot of ways and a lot of sort of old thinking in order to get to where you are in order to become uh, an artist at all, which, you know, I don't know if you ever thought that was a possibility growing up for you. Did it, did it feel like one or did you have to sort of motivate yourself to discover that there was a bigger world than the one that you grew up in? Definitely had to motivate myself to discover a bigger world. I grew up, I grew up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Cool town. Rainy Seattle. But I love Snohomish more than anything. <laughs> Snohomish where my oh, sister Snow lives. Snohomish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you know, I grew up in, uh, well, I grew up in Bothell, which is... Um, not as cool a not name. As, not as cool of a name as Snohomish. <laughs> I know you love the word, the name Snohomish and you can take that. Oh. And, you know, I grew up in a home in the suburbs, you know, of, of Seattle. So it wasn't even Seattle proper. It wasn't a city. You know, my parents probably made a collective of $50,000 a year that they raised a family of, you know, my sister and I and them. Wow. So, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in money or anything. I, I had to kind of, I had to work for every penny that I've made thus far in my life. And I've always, I'm grateful to have had parents that have always encouraged me, but I also grew up in a, um, very conservative Christian home, which was a different world in and of itself that I've had to kind of explore what I believe throughout the rest of my life. Did you, do you find that or did you, or, or do you continue to find that hard? Because I think religion in general, when you're brought up in a, in a more religious home, you kind of forget there's any other way to see the world. It becomes part of the fabric of your understanding of the world around you. I, I am really curious because I don't know how do you, how do you change your thinking? How do you say, Oh, I grew up with this set of beliefs and now I'm going to question them. When did you start to question them? How did you start to question them? Did you feel guilty about questioning them? And then how did you get past that? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I grew up in a bubble, first of all. And it's, you know, religion can be very insular in the community that, they, that it creates around it. And so you can become sheltered from the outside world. And... You know, I, up until the point where I was 20, 21, I was going to church probably four or five days a week. It was like playing in the band and going to church on Sundays and going to practices and going to other youth group meetings and all this stuff. And I finally just hit a breaking point where I got so burnt out that I was just like, ah, I need to like, I need to explore. And, Mm. you know, I think there was something that I always tried to get behind or tried to believe growing up, but I don't know if I ever fully, fully believed it. And so that caused like a little bit of a a, a dissonance, Mm -hmm. but I never really, because I was in, grew up in the culture, I never really explored that. You know, it was, it was too hard to explore that. It was actually not okay to explore that. Um, And having to be kind of perfect in a certain light, I think affected me in you know, that also caused a lot of dissonance within myself growing up because you kind of start to feel something, but you're not really, you don't feel like you're allowed to 
think about that or explore it. Mm-hmm. And then when I, when I turned 21, I kind of started exploring that more. And sure. I mean, 21 was, is such a, it's such an, you know, influential number when you think about it. It's like, you know, the age at which you are officially an adult in sort of every definition of that word. And, and did you feel like because you were an adult at that point, you had the freedom and the choice to kind of step away a little bit from what you'd grown up with? Um, slowly, slowly. I mean, it took years. I was still one foot in, one foot out, or I guess, you know, one foot in the water, one foot in the boat in terms of, uh, you know, I still kind of practice what I grew up with, but also through slowly through different conversations and, and different people explored things that were beliefs that were outside of that. And, and you were able to combine those two in a way that felt comfortable to you. Yeah. Because I I, I guess my next question would be, how did you decide to leave? I mean, it's one thing to sort of question your beliefs, but you left Seattle in search of a career that you felt this like incredible passion for, which is photography. Yeah. How did you just decide to get up and leave? I think it's the most brave thing in the world. And, you know, (laughs) for somebody who grew up in New York City and sort of was like, oh, yeah, no, I've been here all this time. I know what it's like. It, uh, to me, is such an act of bravery to grow up in a small town or suburb and say, yeah, no, there's more. There's such a bigger world when it's so easy to stay insular. Yeah. So how did you get up the gumption to leave? (laughs) Well, I think that I think it's it's a little bit. We should probably rewind a little bit. You know, I had always been artistic growing up. I had, I was drawing and painting when I was in, you know, middle school. And then through, uh, through high school, I started, um, I took AP art. Mm-hmm. And so we had to do portfolio from like from different practices, pottery, uh, sculptor, like graphic, you know, well, this is when graphic design had just started, um, kind of becoming on the forefront, which was desktop publishing back then. Um, and, you know, there's drawing, there's painting, there's all these different things. Photography was part of that. So we just had to put together something around that to explore it. And so I'd taken a couple of classes in high school and college for photography, but it was always just a hobby. So I went to school for graphic design mm-hmm. and that was, um, that was the track that I thought I was going to be on. And I never, I never had a clue that I would ever leave Seattle. I never had a clue that I would, you know, live in another, another city, I think travel is what kind of spark started to spark that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was 21, I went to England, London or England and Britain and traveled around for a month with a backpack and a guitar. That's and brave. <laughs> I just did it. It's <laughs> so brave. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I did, I, I traveled and that kind of opened my eyes up to the world of travel. Mm-hmm. And at this point I had gotten a job, I sold Cutco in, in college when I was going to community college. And this is the thing. So, you know, my parents, they paid for half of my college tuition, which was community college. And then I still got to live at home. That was kind of like the deal. So I still had to work and pay for my college and uh, the rest of my college to be able to go forward, which is why, probably why I went to community college. Cause I didn't have enough money to, to go to a, like a four year, but, um, I got a job after selling knives. I got a job. It was an internship kind of thing at the, some a laser manufacturer of all places, mm. um, in their marketing department. And actually, no, I was, I actually started working for them in the clean room, <laughs> making laser parts. Whoa. <laughs> wearing, wearing Wait, a, I don't 
know this about you. I almost forget about it. <laughs> but now it's like, and now it's like jogging my memory <laughs> and totally funny. I remember <laughs> talk about aggro. <laughs> Be like, if you're sitting there in a clean room with like a white jumpsuit on and a mask and you're like, you're literally your job is screwing in screws and into a laser laser bore all day long. And it's like, mm, mm. and there's like these, there's the, there are these things called helicoils. So you'd have to like put those in first. It's, it was like a, it's like a spring coil type of thing to put the screw in after that. So it has the collars. And sometimes you'd just be like, and the thing would just be like, and like get completely uh, all like tangled up and talk about aggro. I'd just be like, <laughs> I mean, for those of you who don't know Nick personally, I will say he is one of the calmest, kindest people you will ever meet in your life, except if he's in traffic in a car for over three hours. And then I assume it's a lot like that aggro response you had to the helio? The helicoils. Helicoils. I was like, heliotropes, helicoils um, getting tangled. That's yes. what I'm guessing. Yes, yes. Anyways... Long story short, <laughs> I worked my way up into an internship in the in the uh, second floor, which is the marketing department where all the, uh, you know, all the, I don't know what you call them, the, the suits walk around, mm. but not that I had to wear a suit. So I ended up doing an internship in, for a graphic design internship in the marketing department, which consisted of me sitting in a cubicle by myself trying to figure out what I was doing. Um, but it was a great, I was going, I started, you know, going to community college and I learned more at that job than I did in college technically. And I did that for about nine months to a year and then got a job working and designing book covers at a small publishing company in, in Seattle, in Mukilteo actually, where we went. Uh, cool. Love that name, but not as much as Snohomish. <laughs> just, just big shout out to that town. Big shout out to anyone living in Snohomish yes. right now. Stacy loves. I love you. <laughs> loves you. Um, but so, okay. So, so now you're doing graphic design. How old are you at this point? I was 20. I was 20. Okay. So you were 20. You were super young. Yeah. Here you are designing book covers for a small publishing well, company. And, uh, funny enough, it was a small Christian publishing company. Mm-hmm. And I did that for like a year. And then they split, company split between two areas. I was working in Seattle. And the main ones were working in this place called Enumclaw, another Indian name for you. Cool. And funny story is they, the owners got, uh, became a part of this cult and shit just got weird. <laughs> and um, so again, another point in the story where Nick could have turned right and become a cult member, but decided to go straight instead. Yeah. So eventually I was kind of like, you know, I think it's about time to go freelance. <laughs> So always a good sign. Uh, you know, it's funny. I guess that's another jump that I never, that was the last f- real job that I had. You know, I, I, when I was freelance, I worked a couple days a week at a restaurant, the spaghetti factory. Cool. Yeah. Um, as a social outlet, really more than anything, because like, you know, when you're freelance, you're sitting in your room working on a computer for hours on a day. Yeah. Um, so I went freelance from there and then that's when I went to, Britain. I had saved up a little, little bit of money and, and went to travel cause I've always wanted to travel and that's what kind of opened my eyes to the world. And then I, I came back and it was just like a different mindset. So I started traveling more, even if it was just through the United States and visiting different people like my cousin out in Chicago and out and hung out with him quite a few, quite a bit. And then 
Yeah, I start, I picked up a digital camera, you know, and when Wait, you you say that very casually. You picked up a digital camera. When did that happen? When you were traveling in order to document your travels or or somebody gave it to you? How how did you pick one up? No, so I mean, I was back in the you know, when I was doing graphic design, it was all film and I, I it was too expensive for me. I couldn't even literally afford to, you know, develop a roll of film. And so I would shoot maybe one roll of film a year just like for fun. And then when digital technology became good enough to actually use in, in design work, I, I picked up a Sony. It was a glorified point and shoot camera and I started shooting stuff for my design work just, just for cause. Yeah. And just for cause. Just cause I, I need it. You know, there's you know, those clients that didn't want to pay for photos or, you know, and I just needed some even texture or whatever. So that's why I originally got it. I started shooting taking pictures of whatever glass on a table or like scenes or started doing people a little bit. Mm. And then my friend, uh, my friend Tristan, he does it networks and he like literally, he went to Africa and built the network for a nonprofit out there. And he came back and he was telling me about it. And I was like, wow, I wish I could travel and, you know, do some, do, do work, but like, I couldn't really do that with graphic design. You don't necessarily need to be there. And I got this idea. I was like, well, why don't I try pitching my design client, a a trip to Africa and build them a photo library and I'll split the expenses with them. So I did. And they, wow. Yeah. So they went for it. So that was like, that must've been, that's a huge, I mean, at least looking back, I don't know if you were actually aware of it at the time, but looking back, doesn't it feel like that was a huge aha moment for you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the crux of my photography story is that like, that was a huge thing. I didn't know what I was doing. I, and I, I just kind of took that risk or took that idea and ran with it and when I pitched it to them they're like oh that sounds great yeah. I was like oh yeah let let's do it <laughs> so I just scrambled try to figure it out and I set up I produced the whole trip um they have they have people in in like all countries all over the world so I ended up going to Zimbabwe Uganda Kenya and Burundi for a month and that trip like changed my life. I never see, saw the world in a, in a in the same way again. And yeah. how did it change? I mean, it went from what black and white to color, or was it more significant than that? Was it? How did it change your worldview? I think the significance of it is when you experience the developing world for the first time, and people that have absolutely nothing, and you know what we would spend on a coffee, people is more people, more than people make in a month. Yeah. And they live in little mud huts with grass roofs and like sweep the dirt to clean it. And, you know, but they're so happy and joyful and they'll give you the shirt off their back. That, that'll change you. Yeah. You know, that'll make you grateful for, you know, any smallest thing that we have. And that, that's how it changed me. I think, you know, it, it also opened my eyes to the world of photography and how much I loved it and how much it was a vehicle to travel. And I, I loved, I just found that I loved making pictures. I loved, there's something I love about it. There's the, the creative residence that I've talked about before is it's, it, there's this, this joy or this like high feeling. It's a, like a drug that you feel when you create something that you love 
and then share that. And, you know, you get the reactions of people as well as a secondary feeling of inspiring somebody else visually. I think that was the other piece of that. Mm. And so Africa, that trip to Africa for me was both, both things, seeing the world in a different way, being grateful for the way that we have it in the first world. And even if I grew up in a, a home in the suburbs where my parents barely made any money on, on a grand scheme, I mean enough, but way more like than, than Africa. Sure. And uh, I think that was uh, a huge turning point. I mean, it took me months to recuperate from that, that, uh, that trip in the form of, of being able to come back and interact in our world. Wow. I mean, I literally like laid on the couch and just like, I, I was, I couldn't figure out how, how, you know, there's this going on in the world and we live like we live and we complain about so many things and right. Like my coffee's too hot. Yeah. (laughs) And we're, we're suing McDonald's because we spilled coffee on our lap and it was hot. Like it's, it's a completely different paradigm. So I think that's definitely played into the last, however many years of my life up until now, especially. And, and so that opened my eyes to photography. So a few months later I started, exploring and shooting a little bit more. And then I connected with another photographer out in Seattle, uh, Jim Garner, who was shooting weddings and, you know, like uh, commercial stuff, you know, smaller like product shoots or different things like that. And cause I was doing website updates for him, you know, I think that was the universe kind of pa- paving my path for me. Yeah. And so I just started asking him all these questions about cameras and he was so kind to to answer them and eventually invited me to come out on a shoot and kind of see what it's like. And I was like, wow, I didn't didn't even know this was a thing. And that's where I started the, my photography journey. And it was a journey. I mean, definitely I had a talent that was there, but took time to develop. Um, so I started shooting, you know, shooting my friends, my, my good looking friends to practice. And I connected, uh, <laughs> connected with the modeling agency and started shooting models and then it turned into lifestyle. And then the lifestyle turned into, you know, more con- conceptual stuff. And then, you know, through that time, you know, that's, that's the whole other time that I think is the, that was the struggle. The, the other big struggle of my career was learning how to like, how do I, make money and survive, pay, pay my bills while still practicing because nobody's paying for me for my, my photography. Sure. Nobody pays for practice. It's a, it, I mean, you know, as a rule, that's usually the case, but so there's a couple of things about that. I mean, first of all, you're talking about, you know, the idea that your eyes were opened by that trip to Africa, I find to be pretty significant because that sounds to me like it wasn't just a mindset about how can there be, you know, this kind of poverty developing in, you know, in developing countries while we enjoy so much in first world countries, but it opened your eyes literally <laughs> to the point where you wanted to be able to see and show your, your view of the world through photography. I mean, yeah. it clearly seems like both those things were unlocked your philanthropy and your talent for photography sort of grew up together. Am I, am I, 
wrong about that? Am I, it just seems to me the way you tell the story that there is something very heartfelt and very deep for you about seeing these people with nothing who could be so happy. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in a lot of ways, growing up in a first world nation can make people unhappy for, mm-hmm. you know, a variety of very superficial, stupid reasons. Yeah. But at the same time, you were able to take that feeling and translate it into the photography that you took all over that country. Yeah. So it just sounds, you know, I mean, maybe I'm making an assumption and a leap here, but, but it does sound to me like open your eyes is a really great kind of mantra for you mm-hmm. because you were able to open your eyes. And since mm-hmm. uh, you've been able to open other people's eyes with your photography. I mean, you do a lot of work with pencils of promise. You mm-hmm. have an incredible amalgamation of ph- photographs from all of your trips with them. And I think that that's part of it. And Okay, so now you're back, you're in Seattle, you've been like completely like floored by this work. You start working with, you know, Jim and he's been really kind to you. Yeah. How did you then get over this next challenge where you wanted to practice and nobody was going to pay you for it? (laughs) You knew that photography was now like your passion. So where did you go from there? Well, yeah, I mean, this was like, it, it was scrappy, right? And I, you know, when I was, I was freelancing design at this point and luckily like that was a huge asset to everything. It was A, being able to, to do my own branding and website stuff and not have to pay for it. Mm. But also B, it gave me the flexibility to pick up smaller design projects and have the flexibility to pl- practice with my, uh, practice my photography. So I kind of, I didn't have to work like a regular job and have hours I could, I had my own hours because I was freelance graphic design working. So then I could do a couple of days with Jim in a week. Right. I could do, I could work on projects, design projects. And then I could do a, a couple of days of like shooting with friends and I could be building my websites and, That's a lot of stuff to do all together at once. I mean, did you learn a lot about time management at that period of your life? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that was a big part of it. I, you know, time management, you know, and I've, I've, I probably have not been that great at time management my whole life anyways. I just kind of work until it's, it's done, uh, which usually meant like slaving away for 12 hours a day in a, in a dungeon room. I, so I lived at this point, I moved to Seattle Mm -hmm. by, at Green Lake actually, which I haven't shown you yet, but, uh, it was great. It was like a, it was a great place to live. And I lived in the basement room of this house, this three bedroom house. And I paid $330 a month for rent. God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my car was paid off. So, you know, I had a Honda civic, I paid $330 a month in rent. I, you know, had a cell phone. So I think the biggest goal for me was to cut expenses as much as I could so that any money that I was able to make would go back into my business. So, I mean, but even during that time, I would, I would do, um, I would, I would make one meal of spaghetti and see how many lunches I could get out of it because that would just, you know, anything that I could do to save money and put it back into my business was like a huge aspect of it because you're, you're never, when you do it, when you start out, it's never easy. It's never easy because you have to buy yourself the time to practice. And, you know, everybody does it a different way. Everybody's got a different path. And I think it's about figuring out the variables that you're working with and cutting and sacrificing certain things to be able to move and shift time and money into your craft because it takes time and you have to create your sandbox 
to of play and practice. Um, I mean, it, you know, on the surface of that, that sounds like a, a huge sacrifice to have to make. But when you think about it, I mean, this was all to move your career forward. And it was a career that you were completely passionate about. So looking back at it, would you say that it was a sacrifice and super hard? Or was it something that you felt very strongly about doing just because you knew that it would push you forward? I think it's a little bit of both. So I think the, uh, I was so passionate about it and I just felt such a high resonance for photography in general Mm. that the sacrifice didn't feel like much, even though it probably was, you know, like everybody else is, is, you know, having full-time jobs and making money and going out and doing all these things. And I, I had to say no to that. I had to, to hunker down and do it, but I think I loved it so much. And I, you know, I love it so much that it didn't matter. Mm. it didn't matter. Like, but there were still those fears of like, Oh my God, when, how am I going to pay my rent? You know, like when you're learning, you're not getting paid. And then like the freelance design jobs here, they're here and there. Um, so it was, there was a lot of scrape. And then how do I buy equipment? You know, exactly. back then equipment wasn't $500 like it is now, you know, like the, the digital cameras when I started were, you know, uh, over a thousand to really get into the higher professional grade. You know, the the camera that I had bought was decent, but you know, seven megapixel camera point and shoot camera isn't sufficient for what we would, you know, the stuff that we need actually on a professional level. So how did you get there? I mean, at some point you got out of that basement (laughs) and you got a better (laughs) camera. How did that happen? And, and, you know, I know that you left Seattle, obviously, I mean, not just because we're sitting in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but I do know a little bit about your background. And I want to know when it was that you decided that you had to leave in order. I'm assuming that was in order to grow your career. Yeah, I, I felt, so I think, let's see, from there I was doing small, you know, it, it, that developed into um, getting paid to shoot models for the agency. Mm-hmm. And that was only like a couple hundred bucks for a shoot. So all of that money went into my, my business bank. And then like I started shooting weddings on the side, you know, or get a thousand dollars for a day, which is, you know, for a wedding, you know, that was a lot more than I would be getting if I was working at the spaghetti factory. So Mm. there was this balance, you know, it was just kind of like hustling that side just to pay the bills so that I could keep building my other portfolio, the, the, the advertising portfolio. And I think that was, that was, that was a couple of years of, of pushing that. And and then I did a couple more travel shoots for the, for that, that nonprofit. I did one in Latin America and a little bit before that, I had gotten the job, my first job for Nike. Mm, oh, wow. So wait a second. Hold on. Because now now we're getting a little bit out of order and I'm, I, me personally, <laughs> am going to get confused. You were still living in Seattle when you got your first job for Nike? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a, uh, I, I just kind of started playing with Studio Light a little bit, not too much, just kind of building a portfolio. At this point, I you know had my website that I had built myself and it was very basic and, uh, it was like a, it was a Monday before Christmas in 2004. And uh, I got a call. I was on another shoot and I got a call from this this uh, producer at RGA. And he What's was like, RGA? RGA is a huge advertising agency, but they're more digital agency. Okay. And he's like, hey, I, you know, I, I 
wanted to see if you could, I'm calling on behalf of Nike and we want to see if you can do a shoot next week. Um, we're shooting Ben Roethlisberger, Mariana Rivera, and I'm literally writing these names down so I can Google you them because I have no idea who they are. <laughs> Albert Pujols, Brian Urlacher, and I'm like, uh, like writing these things down. I'm like, yeah, you know, I think I can. <laughs> and so I go back home at later and like Google these people. I'm like, oh, oh, they're pretty big. Yeah. Cool. Um, so how, took, did, how did Nike find you? How did RGA find you? So I had a friend who was an art director who had kind of like um, was in Seattle for a long time, moved to New York and he gave them my name and they were just like in a pinch. They needed somebody for the next week. And he because it was Christmas because it was Christmas. So Monday they called me Christmas on Saturday. We finished negotiating on Thursday <laughs> Because, you know, negotiating with them takes a little bit of time and they didn't really want to pay that much. And I was, you know, did all my research. I was scrambling, right? I was like, I don't know how to charge for this stuff. So I was doing all this online research, asking friends. And that's like how you do it. Like you get scrappy. You ask your friends, you ask people that know you, you, you know, find people that you can talk to and ask them. And I think that's good, especially if you're young and you're trying to figure out what to charge for something, ask the people that do know. Um, so you're helping the industry and yeah, we negotiated, got it. And I had to find somebody to, to, I had to find gear for it. San Diego the next week. And there's literally no, there's not much down there. So I ended up finding that through, through another friend, found an assistant in LA that had all the gear that I could rent and he could come assist. So that's how I did it. It just all came together, went to San Diego and then went to, um, that was the first week. And then the next week we went Pittsburgh, St. Louis, LA. And that was a whole crazy run. You know, we flew to Pittsburgh we shot uh, Ben Roethlisberger in the morning on Tuesday because we got in at like super late at Monday. And then Mariana Rivera late in the afternoon. And we were supposed to fly to L.A. the next day and then shoot on Thursday. But at like five o'clock at night, they're like, OK, so we got permission to shoot Albert Pujols in St. Louis tomorrow. So all you guys need to buy tickets and like restructure the whole thing. And this is five o'clock the night before. So our team, and by the time we had bought ticket, they, they said that they, apparently the production, the commercial production had chartered a jet already because they had so many people that it was cheaper and we were going to fly with them. But then at eight o'clock at night, they're like, we can't because of insurance. So we were like eight o'clock at night booking tickets for the next morning at five 30. There was no direct flights. So we had to fly through Detroit and get, we got there we got to St. Louis at about 11 o'clock, got in our car, drove to the set shot Albert Pujols for about 30 minutes, got in the car and drove back to the airport and flew to LA. Wow. It was insane. But so that, that was your first major job. And also sounds like you had to be super scrappy at that point too. When, after that, did you leave Seattle? We got to get out of Seattle. I know we got to get out of Seattle. So there's a lot more to cover. There's a lot more to cover. Well, well here, here's, here's the, uh, the next, the next step. So I got back, I thought the ball was rolling. I got, you know, I got this job for Nike. I'm like, I'm in, this is going to like, you know, snowball and it's all like uphill or downhill from here. Right. right? (laughs) 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 So I, I shot a couple weddings and then I was like, you know what? I want to move to Paris. So I wait, I'm sorry, (laughs) Paris. Like that was your first thought. You just went to LA. That wouldn't have been like easier. Well, I wanted to live in another country before my career started to like 
you know, kind of more take off. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to live in a career as um, a country that was more photography centric. And so I was either Milan or Paris. And, you know, I, everybody I've talked to that's been to Milan was like, eh, it's just kind of whatever. Yeah, like, it's a very industrial city. You know, Paris is just way more magical. And so it I decided magical. I moved to Paris. And right before Paris, I did a month in Latin America with uh, the same organization. Um, so I, sh I did that. I, sta I basically just saved that money. It was the most money I've ever made in my life on that Nike job. Enough for me to go live in Paris for at least six months. Wow. Yeah. Scrappy, but you know, so I, I got an apartment right a block from the Seine in St. Michel and lived there and, and just kind of lived and I did some model testing and, and explored the city and traveled to different places on the weekends in Europe. And I just like, I wanted to see if I could, I just wanted to like experience living in another country before um, I moved back to the States. So you, you've always sort of been hungry for experience. It seems to me like that's kind of another through point since you're, you were a kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I think I've always been experiencing art first over money mm. and I still love the business side of it, but I think, you know, I, th I love experience. I love traveling. I love, you know, and that first trip to Africa just sparked even more travel. I mean, I think once you start traveling, you just get the, the wanderlust bug and you want to travel. And, you know, now I've been to over 70 countries and wow. most of it is because of photography, you know, and it's whether it's people are taking me and flying me to different places or I'm doing my own trips, you know, and paying for my own trips to like go and create my own work or do whatever. I mean, I can create my own work. I can go travel. I can experience. So, uh, photography has been a, the perfect vehicle for that. Mm, so you left Paris and went where? So I left Paris, came back to the States and I basically moved home for mm -hmm. a couple of months, but I was like traveling out on the road. And, and then, uh, 2006, I moved to LA. I had some friends already down there. It was kind of LA and New York if I wanted to actually, so this was the other significant thing is I think, building yourself as a photographer in a bigger city like LA or New York is highly important because there's, there's just a different level of, of exposure in each of those cities and there's more production. There's a higher caliber talent. There's, you know, there's production talent. There's all kinds of stuff that you just don't get when you're in a smaller town. And so that, that takes some of the onus off you and you can work with other people who actually know their trade. Yeah. I mean, there's that, there's the experience of like working with people that are, that know their trade and that are really great, but there's also access to the right models and the right, you know, clothes or the right location. Not, I guess locations you could shoot anywhere, but it's, it, it's really like talent and, and, um, production. Right. I was thinking, yes, I was thinking about production, but I, I, yeah. you're absolutely right. I mean, it makes complete sense. Like all the models are going to be in LA or New York or Paris or so that makes yeah. sense to me. Um, and, you know, now at this point, you have like a pretty significant body of work. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're we're at 2006. How did you find living in L.A.? Was that creatively inspiring for you? <laughs> L.A. L.A. <laughs> you know, L.A. was it was it was a good experience. I lived in Santa Monica. Um, <laughs> I lived in LA. I, I lived in Santa Monica. It was a good experience, I think. Um, and I had friends there down there to start and I kind of built, 
I think it was a good move for me to move there first because um, it's, it's a lot easier to live there. I moved to a place in Santa Monica. It was about 800 bucks a, a month in rent, and which was three times what I was paying, you know, two to three mm. times what I was paying previously. So more at stake, you know, and I mean, when you're a starving artist, $800 a month is a huge leap moving to a new city, not knowing what you're doing, you know, like it's, I, and I had to kind of start my career over, uh, my networking over my, you know, cause it was a whole different ball game. What made you think you could do it? You know, I think I was just determined. I think, I don't think there was a, I mean, there was definitely some fears there of like, could I do it? But I just was like, you know what, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And what, I guess I could always move back home if I needed to. Right. Um, but there was also this other side of me that's like, I'm going to do everything that it takes. So I don't have to do that. Right. I mean, I just think it's interesting because in a lot of ways, that kind of determination, it could really be born out of faith. And you did grow up with a lot of faith. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's actually, you know, part of the reason that <laughs> you actually moved away from the culture that you grew up with, but found another way to utilize the instruments that were given to you as you grew up. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I just, I got, since I, maybe it's because I'm a visual person. I have more faith in more tangible things that mm-hmm. I can create mm-hmm. versus things that are like not as that are like an idea or a story. And also that you would have more control over, I'm assuming, but that kind of belief that you can do things. Yeah. That requires a lot of faith, I think. And, and, you know, I mean, I also think that there are people who understand that about themselves and people who don't, or people who, who don't can't access that. So I guess my next question would be like, you're, you're building all of this stuff. You're, you're, you're creating this photography career. You did not, you were like, I'm determined to make this what I want it to be. How long were you in LA for? And, and you know, how much do you feel that you moved your career forward during that period? I mean, I did definitely moved it a, a huge amount and I was there for three years from 2006 to 2009. And when I got back, when I got down there, it was, all, it was kind of the same thing back over again. I had run out of money and I started taking design projects and I had to keep doing design projects. I connected with modeling agencies. It was hustle, 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 hustle. And I lived in a, the, the room that I got in this house was literally the size of a queen size bed with like three feet on the left side. And there was like one foot at the foot of the bed between the bed and the window. Oh and I like, like threw all my, like stacked all my stuff. And then like the three feet that was on the left side of my bed was all my computers. Like I literally had, you know, like a Mac tower with like a 30 inch monitor and a big printer that I was printing my portfolios on. I could sit on my bed and use my computer. <laughs> and that was $800 a month. And it was $800 a month. And, you know, there was like a living room. There was like shared with a couple of roommates and there was a living room, but I pretty much spent all my time <laughs> working in my room on my, my business and my photography, whether it was processing images that I'd shot, designing my website, printing, creating my books, printing my books. And I mean, my friend Omri, who I'd met, 
who's a, who's now a big time director, he would, he would always come over and he'd be like, tease me about like the, the Onkin sweatshop going on, mm. you know, like the Chinese, the Chinese, the Chinese sweatshop. <laughs> Cause it would be like 95 degrees in there in the summertime, no AC. And I'd just be like sweating my balls off. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I have to do this. I have to work. I have to get this done. And yeah, but that kind of work ethic is, is also part of what is required for success, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you have to have the drive to to just keep doing and keep keep working. There's so many aspects beyond just taking fit photos to the business and to building it. You mm-hmm. know, there's the marketing, there's the meetings, there's the portfolio, like the sites, portfolio sites. And, you know, I, at the time, portfolios were a big thing, printed portfolios. Now, now they're, now they're not as much, you know, but there's, they still, you still need one, but I would print, you know, I'd have my Epson printer and I'd be printing, you know, 13 by 19 prints on this like Moab paper and then cutting them down and spraying them. And it took me a whole day just to print, you know, 12 hours just to print and put one portfolio together. And I had like four or five of them. Wow. Yeah. And I was doing it all myself because I, I couldn't afford to like hire that out. I got cheap. I had to like cheap everything. Like I had to do as much on my own as I could to save money. So, okay. What kind of jobs did you start getting in LA to make that kind of labor worth it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, so I got a, an agent kind of midway through, I think, you know, and I had done, you know, I think that first, so I got that, it was 2007, I got another Nike job down in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And that was Mexico City, Santiago, Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo and Rio. It was like a 17 day project. Wow, that's uh, back in the that was like pre two thousand eight, yeah, right? So that's when people were were actually spending money on yeah. advertising. Yeah, ish. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was it was crazy because I had just I had gone to um, actually in two thousand six I went to I did a two month trip in Asia for the same organization I went to Africa for, and that's where I really saw my photography start to take shape. And I was capturing a lot more great images out of uh, of, like a higher number of good images from all the images that I've taken. Mm -hmm. And I was really able to create a travel portfolio. That was like the start of my real travel portfolio. Which eventually became a book, right? Yeah, which eventually became a book. But that job also helped me to get that next Nike job, the the Latin America Nike job. They loved the travel images so much that it, it, it kind of flipped that switch for them to hire me. And so I did that Nike job and that kind of kept me afloat for a little bit. And I did another one the next year, kind of the same thing, but not through the agency. It was direct Nike direct. And then I kind of built those. I just kind of kept in touch with all those people that I've been meeting and they would hire me for little projects here and there. And I mean, again, if you don't know Nick as well as I know Nick, then you might not know that part of the reason that he is on his hundredth episode of his podcast is also because the amount of people that he is friends with on Facebook is astounding. (laughs) This dude does not, once he makes a friend, he doesn't lose a friend. And so, you know, you have a pretty wide net you can cast when it, when it comes to networking and, you know, looking to people, professionals, either for advice or to help you find good work. And you've been able to do that for a long time. That's also a, a huge part, I think, of your success has been your ability to network 
on a much deeper level than most people do. It's not just taking somebody's business card. It's really for you about like a fundamental conversation and, a, a, you know, sort of finding a point of connection with somebody um, and then being able to kind of utilize that, uh, you know, in a way that's like sort of mutually beneficial for both people. Not everybody can do that. So, you know, you spend all that time alone in your room working on your portfolio. <laughs> I guess the other, you know, side of you is like this very social, the hustle side, right? Where did you, were you always that kind of person? Were you always able to make friends easily and find points of connection with people? I think so. I think that was, you know, there, I've also, on one side, I've, had this big social component to my life. I always love meeting new people and I love building my network and, and surrounding myself, you know, but then there's also like a whole nother side of like social anxiety and, and, you know, interacting with different people, you know, sometimes I don't always, I've always had like, a, I've, I've always pushed myself in that, in that respect of, of connecting with people, especially if I don't feel comfortable or trying to talk to people or going to places or going to events where I don't know anyone, especially when you move to a new city, like you kind of just got to put yourself out there. Yeah. And, you know, I think you can meet, you know, for me, it's always been meeting people through other people was, mm -hmm. you know, has been the most, that's the best way I've done it. I, I still have fears of just like going up to people and that I don't know randomly and, 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 I don't know who doesn't have those fears. I mean, I, I, I am totally there with you on the social anxiety thing. I mean, once I'm out in public, I can kind of, you know, manage, but it, oh my God. I mean, you've seen, it takes a lot to get me out. I'm like, oh, I'd rather do anything. I'll stay home. I'll watch Netflix. I, I get so anxious about being social. Yeah. I, th I think it's hard. I think, I think a lot of people get, you know, too much in their head about it, but you know, one of the things is that as much as you get in your head about your work or about your creativity, you are constantly searching and constantly asking questions. Like it's, th that's another through line of your life. You know, when you don't know something, you will go and search out how to figure it out. Yeah. Um, not everybody has that drive. You know, I think it's one thing to talk about having it. It's another thing to really mine your own capabilities as an individual and, and find that drive to, you know, because when you think about it, what's brave, you know, what, what is being courageous? It's being afraid and doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it sounds to me like you've done that in every phase of your life to get where you are, because in some sense you knew that this is where you wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having, I think if you're, if you're wanting to pursue something, it's having the vision for where you want to be so that you can do everything that it takes to get there. And for me, everything that it takes has taken to get to where I'm at and to where I want to go. Mm. And this is, I feel like I'm still got so far to go. Um, but I think being curious and like finding, I think there's, especially the, this day and age, you can, there's, you're one step away from finding the information that you need. And it's a lot easier now than it was in like 2004 or six oh or yeah. nine. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so much about just going after it and like asking the questions and, and learning. And I think the biggest key is to always be learning and always be open to learning and knowing that you don't always have the answers and mm. you know that there's always different perspectives that you can learn from. Well, you and I have talked about this in terms of like personal relationships and careers that, you know, you don't know your blind spot 
because it's your blind spot. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's only through the help of other people who can kind of see parts of you that you kind of can't, that you can sort of recognize you don't know what you don't know and then figure out how to know it, right? Mm -hmm. So in 2009, you moved to New York. Yeah. Your career has taken you finally to the <laughs> homeland, the Mecca, the uh, Mecca. Of, of, you know, uh, artistic creativity on, on many levels, I think. Um, so you get here and then what do you do? Yeah. So I had at a certain point, I started making a little enough money. I'd gotten an agent for like eight months mm -hmm. and, um, in LA and I just realized that that wasn't the right move. Like she wasn't the right fit. Mm -hmm. So I, I dropped her and started searching for another one. And just a, a quick aside there, because I think just in terms of, again, any creative who needs representation, how do you figure that out? Because representation for, for creative artists, I think is very hard. You know, I'm not always sure entirely what that means. Like doesn't, is an agent supposed to find you work or is an agent supposed to just sell your work and take a commission? Are you supposed to hustle and just, you know, it's one of those necessary evils. You have to have an agent to be taken seriously. You know, how did you find that process of finding somebody to represent you well? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I'm sure a lot of people want to know the answer to this one. And I, you know, I think that's definitely evolved and especially where I'm at now, I'm like, I don't, it, it, the world's changed. But when I first, I think having, getting an agent, your work has to be to a certain place and you already have to be shooting for clients. Mm. That's the first thing. Do, you know, my first agent was big in the celebrity syndication world and trying to break into the advertising world. At this point, I'd already hired a couple, like a consultant to help me understand the advertising industry and learn how that works. So when I got this agent, I ended up, I was, I was getting frustrated because I was teaching her how to market in the advertising world. Yeah. That's not a good, that's not a great relationship. When, right. Exactly. And I, you know, I wanted her to catalyze my career, but I felt like I was trying to catalyze her agency. And so that was like, that was a hard point for me. And I, I think, you know, a good agent is going to already like already have connections to introduce you to, especially when you're first starting. Like, so I think agents do different things as your career evolves. Um, so for me, that first agent, I just like, she was stuffing my portfolio or my, my, my male promo pieces herself. And I'm like, A, shouldn't you be out shooting or showing my books mm. and B, get an intern for that. Like <laughs> you should be out making the relationships and, and, and talking to people and getting my work out there personally, if, especially if I'm really your only advertising photographer. So that just, you know, that's why it didn't work out. And mm. then I started, I was like, okay, she, I think she had gotten me one, one job in that whole eight months, which is for some clothing company. And, you know, it was a, a bigger job, so it was good, you know, but in the grand scheme, I, it wasn't the right fit. I need so, somebody who's going to like catalyze my career. Right. So um, you were looking for a relationship that was not based on you having to make your agent's career, but your agent, in fact, helping you. El, you know, elevate yours. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in terms of getting an agent, you already have to have some momentum behind you. And I already had like a couple Nike jobs and those, that was probably the biggest name that I'd had at that point. Um, and so, and then I started shooting for Cosmo. Cosmopolitan. US, yeah. Cosmopolitan magazine, magazine US. <laughs> um, back in, you know, that was probably 2008. 
and early 2008. And then I ended up, I was like, when I dropped that other agent, I, I started looking for new agents. So I, I contacted through friends who knew other agents and mind you, I'd already been going out on ad agency meetings myself and setting up all these meetings, whether it was in LA or Chicago or wherever I was going, I was setting up meetings with ad agencies and just hustling, showing in my books and my portfolios and, and, and events in, in hopes that someday they would hire me. Yeah, I think that that's also an um, incredibly useful tip. Whether you have a great agent or not, never losing your hustle and doing some of that work yourself, going out there, putting yourself out there, meeting with ad agencies or any kind of client, I think is something really important. And I think it also shows a deep respect for the industry that you want to work in. Yeah. And it also, you know, it keeps you humble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like go do, you know, you have an agent to go do your bidding. You stay in it. You stay in the mix. Yeah. And, and I think that for any artist who really cares about working consistently, that's something that you want to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially, I mean, I'm relearning that now. It's like, and you know, things are always up and down and you always have to hustle no matter what point in your career you are. You always have to get scrappy and you always have to hustle. And, and especially this day and age, there's more photographers, there's more, there's, there's more competition. Like the, the landscape has changed. Well, I want to get to that in one second. Yeah. You, you've moved to New York now, okay? <laughs> we have firmly put you in Brooklyn. Right. You moved to Williamsburg. I know you took the first apartment that you saw. You loved it. You saw a couple others, but you knew this was the one. Yeah. Well, uh, let's just rewind a, a slight bit because before I moved to New York in 2008, I, had, I came out here a couple of times. For Cosmo. For Cosmo, but then I, when I wanted to look for new agents, I interviewed five different agents. Three of them were out here in New York. Ah, okay. So yeah. that impetus makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So in all these connections I had made through different people, like I had went on a meeting at Shiat Day with one of the art buyers and I told her, you know, I was looking for, you know, looking for new agent, new representation. She's like, oh, I know like three agents I can introduce you to. So that's how I got connected with them. If you're already in taking meetings with ad agencies and they like your work and they recommend you to an agent that opens up the door even more. Yeah. Even better. Even Gosh. better. Yeah. So she connected me with these agents. I set up meetings with them. I interviewed five agents and ended up going with greenhouse reps out here and they catalyzed my career. Wow. Uh, they got me my first job for secret deodorant. And that was the, uh, that was December of 2008, uh, 2008. And it was my first big production. I had a whole production crew and it was great. And, you know, and it was funny enough, the art buyer was somebody I'd previously met with on my own meetings a couple of years before, but having my agent, you know, and being on that roster actually gave me the credibility to get that job. Right. So that, that started like, like the next three year, four years are like the biggest years of my career. And so I, about that time I'd started making money. I was like, well, I need to get a bigger place. You know, like I have enough money to, to spend more on, on rent. And I was starting to look in LA and I was like, why do I even want to live in LA? I just, <laughs> I hate driving in traffic. I just, as we like, know. Yes. Yeah. And I just didn't, I wasn't having, I don't know, LA is a weird vibe living there because your ecosystem of friends are so far apart and like everybody who's my good friends are always traveling and, and working and doing stuff. So like, why don't I move to New York? So I did, I decided and halfway to, through, through 2009, I, I was like, I just decided to do it. I came out here in May, 
mid-May, stayed with a friend here in, in Williamsburg, and I was like, I got on PadMapper. And, What's uh, PadMapper? PadMapper is like a cross between Craigslist and Google Maps, so you can search listings by location. Oh. And I found okay. the place that I'm... we're sitting in right now. And oh, it on was PadMapper? Thanks, PadMapper. Pad yeah. So We're not even sponsoring this episode. I know, right? <laughs> so I, I, get, I, I checked this place out on a Sunday, I believed. I think it was Sunday. No, it was Saturday. I literally came straight here. The broker was here. And I was like, this place is amazing. Two floors. I can have my office downstairs. It's like all huge windows where, you know, we're sitting right now. Very bright. And the, the building was paying the broker fee. So I was like, and it was, but it was $500 more than I wanted to spend. Well, wait a second. This was now in 2009 we're talking, right? So this is after the crash. This is after the crash. So, I mean, I'm So buildings were really desperate to get tenants. Yeah. Yeah. So I scored, you know, and I was like, I want it. I'll take it. And the guy was like, you probably want to go look at some other places. (laughs) I was like, I got a good feeling about this. Yeah, I was, but I will go and look. If you can hold it for me, I will right. go and look at a couple, like more other places. And I looked about six other places and I was like, no, this is it. And I'm still here seven years later. Oh, wow. And it's it's been amazing. Um, this apartment's been amazing. So This apartment is also where your podcast was born? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Although I was doing the first few podcasts in different places, actually. I'm not here at the, at, at the studio. Mm. I didn't have these mics when I first started. Oh, wow. Okay. Scrappy. Scrappy. But 2009, you've moved to New York. You have an agent that you really feel, you know, was catalyzing your career. When did you feel that there was like another outlet for your creativity? Because there's two things that I want to talk about. I mean, obviously the podcast that you started and this idea for uh, a brand, actually a lifestyle brand called Neon. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Neon is (laughs) N-I-O-N. First two letters of Nick's first name and first two letters of his last name. Yeah. So pronounced the same, but spelled differently from neon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, that's an, a whole nother journey of getting to neon um, from when I moved here. Uh, you know, neon is is really about uh, living life in color and, and like living a vibrant life, I think, and keeping your eyes open. And I think you know, I'm really fascinated with people that are creating good and great art and like highly efficient lives. What do you mean by highly efficient? Uh, highly efficient. I guess highly, highly productive mm. and, and rich, fulfilled lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you do that? How right. do they Which do is that? funny because I think that a lot of people would ask you the same question. <laughs> How did you do it? And, you know, you moved, let's see. I mean, you moved here in 2009, seven years ago. Your career, like, just shot up, right? Yeah, so my career shot up in 2009, and I just got all these ad campaigns. I was shooting, I shot Nike, Adidas, Reebok, State Farm, Chevrolet. I was shooting... I mean, so many big brands. It's yeah. uh, like you go to I mean, my. I remember you. You go to my website and look at my <laughs> my client list. I'm like, I can't even. Like, it's so many to remember now, and and it really shot off. And I thought, you know, I thought, you know, there again, I thought my career is taking off. And then, well, to, your career did take. It off. did take off. Yes, it did take off. And then around 2011, it started slowing down, and I was like, 
Now, do you think that part of that is because there's, again, more competition? Digital photography makes the competition a lot easier, right? I mean, this is even before social media platforms. Just the fact that digital photography was easier and less expensive, you started to see more competition? Yeah. So I think I think 2011 was really the start of this the digital saturation. I, I and I and I don't you know like I don't know exactly what 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 it is but this is just my my observation of the industry in terms of if I look back and I look and see what's been happening and I had started doing lifestyle photography and and it was really working and it was doing a lot of things and I was getting all these campaigns and then 2011 hit and I thought, man, it's just going to keep going up from here. And it just started going down from there. Mm. And I think what happened, you know, people were starting to do what I was doing. And it, it with the aid of digital technology being you can get into a camera for like a professional grade camera for less than a thousand dollars. And if you know what you're doing, you can create insane images with those. I mean, I can create advertising images with a, an iPhone now. And so I think there was that. And then the, the other ad, additive of access to information and access to um, education for very cheap or for free online, mm. you know, created the space for people to get better um, and uh, faster, faster learning curves and create portfolios. And then not even just portfolios, right? I mean, then you start to see a proliferation of social media accounts where, you know, people were displaying their work. Yeah. Yeah. And and this isn't even like, this is before the whole idea of influencers, Mm. Instagram influencers came into play. And, and I think, you know, the, the playing ground just became for like, there was more, became more competition and less jobs, you know, people spending less money, photographers wanting to get into the industry. So, you know, charging an eighth of the price just to shoot for somebody has completely shifted the industry. And you get, you have that on a massive scale has completely shifted the way the industry is working. And so I think I've seen a lot of the, the reflection of that in my own, in in the last few years. And that sent me, you know, 2011, 12, 13-ish kind of sent me into this like completely downward emotional spiral. It's like, like I didn't know what to do with myself. Which is interesting because, I mean, you've led a life up to that point, pretty much being scrappy and figuring it out. So this is the first time, and and I would agree that, you know, media platforms across all media started shifting around this time. So all of the things that we thought we understood, like print and advertising, even television, all started to shift because of a digital influence. So you started to feel emotionally desperate in a way, I'm guessing. It's, I don't know if that's the right word. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I just like, you know, as an artist, you're work is a part of you. It is you, you know? And when I think when people, when you go after this high of everybody's hiring you, you feel good. You feel like, yeah, people want me. And like, you're validated, you're you're validated, you're emotionally attached to it in a certain sense. And then people stop hiring you and, you know, the work slows down and 
if you, you know, I, I realized how much I was attached and how much I needed that validation after having it for so long mm. that I almost got depressed in a certain way. Like yeah. I, I, I don't see how you wouldn't. I mean, frankly, I, I think that it's, it's very, very hard to kind of, you know, this is what happens to actors every day. <laughs> you know, it's like they're famous, famous, famous that everybody yeses them to death. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they think they're sort of invincible until one day they're not, they're not marketable anymore. You know, it's, that's a, that's a tough blow. And this wasn't really about you getting old or anything, you know, like where it was like, you've depended on your looks. It's nothing like that. Right. It's that the pool got bigger. It became an ocean. Yeah. And then how do you distinguish the work that you've always been validated <laughs> for, you know, from somebody else's work that's an eighth of the price? Yeah. I think that's where the mental and emotional game comes into play, you know? And I, and I think at that point, you know, Lewis told me about this leadership thing out in LA, emotional intelligence leadership training. And I was like, I, I want to do that. You know, I, I don't know. I think there's a deeper space to explore within myself mm. and that began a huge exploration and of myself. And I think, you know, there's a handful of things that I've gotten out of that. And I think the biggest thing in, in relation to my career is learning how to separate the validation that I, you know, and me from my work, Yes, like who I am from my work and um, being able to, detach, you know, and let the ego separate my ego of the work and the validation from who I am as a person and how I feel about myself, my self-worth, I think was a, that was the, that was the biggest trick, <laughs> mind trick, a yeah, Jedi mind a trick. Jedi on mind trick. But I mean, one also not so easy to accomplish and, and two, again, a really scrappy move, you know, if you think about it, considering the fact that it, some people who get depressed can't get off the couch. They can't close the refrigerator door. And here you are feeling all of these things and you went ahead and took steps to remedy your feelings and your thinking. So, okay, that took place in what, 2011? 2000, yeah, I think 12 or 13. Okay, you know? 12 or 13. It, like it just was like 11 and 12 were a big downward spiral. And I think, I, you know, I, I started doing the emotional intelligence leadership training around like 2013. Okay. And then what do you feel started to come out of that? You Now you can separate yourself from the work. I mean, you know, I think being able to see things without an ego is a massive job, but let's say you've got, you've gotten to that point. You're sort of like Buddha, you're enlightened, you know, you know, you, you know that your work is different from who you are, but then where do you go with the work? You know, I think that process of, of going through that training was a big catalyst for the podcast. Ha. Huh. Um, and here we are. And here we are. You know, I think I had become so fascinated with the way our minds work and the way that we all have blind spots and we all have thoughts uh, that catalyze our decisions, that catalyze our actions, that catalyze our results. Right. And, and that's and like reality. The, yeah. yeah. And that's the premise of the course was to like, A, understand this whole concept of ego versus self and then B, understand which where you, what negative thoughts you have 
that create your the de- negative decisions that you make mm-hmm. and and learning how to be aware of those in the moment and you know not that they're ever going to go away but learning how to be able to manage them in the moment and shift shift where you're coming from mm-hmm. because what we think and we what we feel the thoughts that we think internally reflect the directly the way that we interact with the world on the outside and the way that we show up to the world and so if you can dive deeper into how you operate as a person as a in how your mind operates you can almost learn how to hack yourself. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent quote, really. <laughs> learn how to hack yourself. But okay, so that's kind of amazing because the podcast has enjoyed an incredible following. I mean, I personally, you know, not only got to do an interview with you interviewing me, but I got to listen to several of your podcasts, one of which was with Emily Fletcher from Ziva Meditation. And I went and took her course almost immediately after hearing that podcast. And at the orientation, there were like four other people who were like, I'm here because of (laughs) Nick Onkin's podcast. So, you know, clearly what you're putting out there is having an effect and it's a kind of different validation if you think about it, right? Yeah. It's just on your on your terms, having had the insight that taking this emotional training has given you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really kind of so it catalyzed that whole idea, and then I it kind of made me want to like go explore that whole idea and other people at the top of their game. And then when did the idea of neon <laughs> like enter the picture? Was that before or after? That was definitely further down the road. And I think, you know, the whole idea behind the podcast, I've always wanted to share. I've always shared what I've learned along the journey, even from when I started. And it was in, in a blog format. I read uh, Keith Ferrazzi's, you know, Never Eat Alone. And, and like being able to add value to other people's lives, I think, was the catalyst for the blog. And then and I called it Shop Talk. And throughout the whole time, and I would write blog posts on what I was learning through my journey and then the podcast came into play and it, that whole thing, that whole blog kind of morphed into the podcast of, you know, Shop Talk Radio. Mm. And, you know, through this whole self-discovery and self-exploration, I've really kind of started kind of distilling my values and the way that I see life and and the the things that I live by of kind of what we already talked about, you know, giving back, living a fulfilled life, creating, you know, making money, building your business and um, philanthropy and all that stuff. And I think that's kind of where Neon has kind of evolved into. Neon is kind of taking the values that I've I've lived by mm-hmm. and have, it, it have come to light and turning that into a brand so that other people... Because I want to inspire other people to to live the same life and to live a fulfilled, vibrant, creative life. And and and, and you know when you talk about giving back, I mean it's kind of interesting because I see it as a separate <laughs> um, category from philanthropy. I mean philanthropy might be your photography with pencils of promise, but giving back is actually this podcast because you're you're imparting information that you've learned so that other people can utilize it. That's giving back. I love the idea of, you know, of the book Never Eat Alone because there really is something to um, the kindness that is involved in giving away your information, giving away what you know, right? There are yeah. a lot of people who would argue never tell them what you know. 
right? Always keep it to yourself so that you're better than other people. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that yeah. philosophy. Yeah. I think the more you share, the, the more you put out into the world, the more information you allow others to have at their fingertips, the, the more you're doing for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, do you feel that satisfaction in yourself? Does that, does that in fact, you know, sort of fulfill the self, not the ego, but the self part of you? Yeah, I think mentorship, I've always been a big part in mentoring people. And I think that was another reason I started this podcast is to be able to kind of, you know, mentor people on a larger scale mm. and, and instead of a one by one on one, which I still mentor people one on one, but I think this is a, a broader reach and I get fulfilled. That's why it's just been a side project. You know, I pay for this out of my own pocket and, but because I love it and I love sharing with other people. And I love being able to connect with other inspiring guests that I can partake their information and share that with the world. And that's been so much fun. And that's kind of, I want to keep doing it and I want to keep creating more out of this. And, and it also like being able to tie taking portraits of the people that I interview Mm. and putting that on a website as an editorial piece so that you can connect, you know, I still connect my photography with, with, uh, with the interviews. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so interesting. You have in no way slowed down in terms of photography. I mean, you know, the industry may have gotten slower, but I, you continue to work constantly, mm-hmm. whether it's on personal projects or not on, you know, other projects, but, but you haven't lost photography. It's just that you've added to photography. You've dimensionalized photography in a way by adding this podcast and by then coalescing the kind of concept of creative sharing and giving into neon. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I understand correctly, and again, this is, this is posed as a statement for you to agree or disagree with really. Um, so it's not, it is a question, but not is that there, you know, listening to you talk, there's so many through lines that seem to embody your life's work. And that is curiosity, determination, enthusiasm, and self-awareness. And if I think about it, (laughs) I mean that those three things, if you add them (laughs) in any way, shape or form, you know, they really, I, I think are hallmarks and all necessary for any kind of fulfilling life. You have to push yourself. You have to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out what to do when, you know, the world doesn't go your way. Um, Push through feelings of anxiety and fear. And it seems to me that you've done that your whole life, actually, without recognizing that that's what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And all of that comes to bear on what you're able to give and share with people now. Mm -hmm. So I guess my next that's just a statement. I didn't even ask you a question. I am <laughs> a lousy it. interviewer as it turns out, but I guess maybe with that in mind, right? Mm-hmm. If you agree with that, then where do you see neon going? What do you see neon becoming? Yeah. Great question. I think, you know, I've been exploring this for so long and, and it kind of keeps evolving and evolving, but, uh, I think it's, there's, there's multiple platforms, there's community aspect to it, you know, like being able to bring, you know, everyone, everyone listening here who wants to live that life, wants to live a vibrant, creative life and learn about themselves and learn about and be able to give back and, and kind of embody that, that idea. 
so there's, you know, I, I see creating events. I see creating a community online platform stuff. I, I see creating, especially creating merchandise or creative projects. I love, I love collaborating with different designers and kind of putting my own twists on whether it's hats or jewelry or t-shirts or, you know, I think I'm fascinated with the idea of collaborating and in general. So I think, and maybe that's where the, the, the two, and I kind of associate the, the N I and the O N as a collaboration between my first and my last name, which also re- represents the idea of collaboration within the brand. Mm. I think I want to be able to bring other people together, other creatives together to collaborate in their own right. And, you know, maybe there's a mentorship program with neon. Maybe there's, um, you know, I think it's just, it's, there's so much of There's, it's taking the ethos and like creating other verticals around it. So I definitely want to make, do art, have art stuff, you know, my painting and, and integrated into it. And, yeah. And your photography. And photography, yeah. 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 But I mean, eventually I want Neon to live on its own. I want mm-hmm. people to to really own it. And and this is like a, a thing that's beyond me. Mm-hmm. It's beyond just what I'm doing. But I, I want people to become a part of it. And I want people to be able to inspire each other. Um, even without me, you know, I'll be there kind of like headline, <laughs> you know, kind of like, you know, leading, leading the movement. But I think I want, you know, I definitely want people to to like create their own connections through it. Sure. I mean, it's funny, but I guess maybe, you know, one thing that has kind of contributed to the demise of photography is that now it's just so widely available (laughs) digitally. But in another sense, the digital world is exactly where the Neon community can start to come alive. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest, most immediate way to reach people. And so, you know, a thing that may have felt like a hindrance in one part of your career may be the catalyst for the next part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, work gotten slower doesn't mean I stopped hustling and doing my own projects. I still work a bazillion hours a day on I, I everything else. I can attest else. to that. I can just out of interview mode for a second. I can attest to the fact that he works 24 <laughs> hours a day. But I think that's a huge key, you know, piece of advice is to even don't screw off in, in the slow times. Use those times as see those times as, as having your own time to do whatever you want. And to create your own projects. Oh, that I think that's great advice. I think, again, that requires a lot of self-motivation and knowing yourself to understand that even in times you know, that feel rough or feel difficult or feel like you, you've, you know, you've got to be scrappy again. You know, it's hard for people to say, wow, I don't have any structure. How do I do this? How do I do my own work? How do I keep myself going? How do I eat alone? You know, because that's sort of what it can feel like. I think that your podcast and what you're trying to create with Neon is going to be a very wonderful way for people to find their motivation in times when they don't seem to find it, you know, can't find it in themselves. And, you know, as an aside, one thing that I've learned uh, through the ups and downs of my career is that the only true thing that uh, working hard will ever bring you is the privilege to work harder. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that if you've been scrappy and you did it and you made it, then you don't have to be scrappy ever again. Oh my God. (laughs) I wish wish for that. I wish that were the case. Right. I think there's, and I, you know, it's become funny because the the more successful you become, 
the more you get a you know you get accustomed to a certain way of living and then then it becomes your the stakes are higher and the more you have to maintain and the more you have to like you know keep going and keep hustling to keep that up you know so then at a certain point you get to decide like how much do you need versus how much you know how much are you working versus how much you know you want to enjoy life and i think that's a huge thing yeah absolutely and i, I you know i would I would think that it also means looking at, you know, how much you need versus how much you want. Mm -hmm. And that those things, those needles change, you know, depending not solely on your work, because you can be consistent in your work, you can evolve in your work, and that doesn't necessarily mean um, the ecosystem around it is going to support it. So, you know, what is it in yourself that's going to keep you going? And, you know, to me, you are somebody who despite, you know, feeling like you're a success or a failure, you've been able to separate those ideas as, as not being part of you. And, and, and really, I don't believe in either of those words. I mean, success and failure, it's all the same thing. It's just experience, but you've been able, I think through emotional training and, you know, just the kind of the life that you've lived, been able to show us that there is a path through, even if it's not the path that you thought you were on. Yeah. Do you, I mean, how do you feel about that? Like, don't, are you, aren't you proud of that? Yeah. And I think I, I, sometimes you just go through and you don't actually realize what you've created and what you've done. And, you know, sometimes I even forget that I wrote a book, (laughs) you know, and and it's, it's a book, it's published. It's, and in that book was, it's an educational book to help people, you know, I think on like travel photography and, you know, with this, with the podcast and with Neon, like, I, I think I just kind of keep creating mm. and it feels good to, like, I love hearing from people. I love when people stop me on the street, like, which they do a lot. Like yeah. they just did in Seattle. Yeah. We were standing on a street corner and this dude in a white truck, like stops at the stoplight. <laughs> we're about to cross the street and he screams, Nick Hawken, dude, I listen to your podcast and you're like this huge inspiration to me. And I almost fell on the floor. <laughs> you didn't even know him. Right. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Shout out to Morgan. Cause he, <laughs> shout he, out Morgan. Cause he said, you know, and, and it always makes me happy to hear when people actually listen to the podcast. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, cause you never know, you never know who's listening. And I, I love hearing from people. I love, I love it when I know that I've made an impact on people's lives. Cause it actually makes it real, you know? Cause like you said, it's like, like I said, it was just like, you just do it and do it and do it. And you just hope that people listen. But if, when, until you hear from people, it, it doesn't seem like it's actually real. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt that way even shooting a television show. There weren't that many people in the room when we were doing it. And I forgot that it was like actually being blasted out onto a channel where people would actually see it. So, you know, when people started to talk to me about it, I was like, oh my God, they're, you know, people are listening, people are watching. Yeah. And it's a weird feeling. I, I, I know we need to wrap this up. This is a long interview and that's probably because I meandered all over the place with you, but... I guess not only I, I've asked you what you see in the future for neon. Mm-hmm. This is just, this is a question that is for me, one of the things that uh, continues to kind of make me in awe of you, but I'm wondering if you can tell your listeners and I'm not sure you're going to know the answer. <laughs> How do you keep from being cynical about the world? <laughs> Oh man. Oh man. I think, you know, 
there's a piece of me that is, that gets cynical, especially the older I get, the more things the you know, more things shift and change. And I think it's, that goes back to the emotional intelligence side of just learning how, you know, I think gratitude is a huge key to resetting. And I, you know, I've created a practice in the morning after I do 20 minutes of Vedic meditation. And just for me, it's, it's at, saying at least three things, thinking the universe, God, the universe for three things that I'm grateful for, even if it's, you know, you or my family down to the breath or your good bed. My good, I, you love your bed. I love my bed. <laughs> you know, I think it's a, it's a mental reset. Mm. And it, I think if you do it in the morning, it kind of really sets that for the day. Mm. You kind of, it's, it's one of those things that's uh, something I've learned in the last year or two and just a practice. And I think that helps reset your perspective. Um, you know, we live a very good life and I live a very good life, I should say. And I, and I, I'm grateful for that, but you got to reset to see that. Yeah. Oh, I, I think those are very, very wise words. Um, <laughs> it's been my honor and privilege to get to interview you, Nick Onkin. Well, it's you. also, you know, my honor and privilege to be your girlfriend too. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> um, but for all of you listening, it was my honor and privilege to be able to interview Nick for his hundredth episode, formerly Shop Talk Radio and now Neon Radio. And uh, now you know why. Absolutely. And one question that I want to answer for everyone, because every I've been asked this and I've never really answered it. Maybe I've answered it on a couple interviews, but people want to know my answer to what does live inspiration mean to me? Mm. And to me, it means to, to stay inspired, keep being inspired so that you can go out and inspire the world. Mike drop. <laughs> thanks for listening. And thanks for interviewing me. You're welcome. We have breakfast now. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Neon Radio, formerly Shop Talk Radio. I am your host, Nick Gonkin, and special thanks to my girlfriend, Stacey London, for the awesome interview today. She is actually a former podcast guest as well, so you can go check her interview out over at neonradio.com slash EP54 to hear about her journey through her career, what not to wear, and all the rest and her philosophies on life her creative process and all that. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you could help us out by leaving us a good review over on iTunes, sharing the episode on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'd love to see where you're listening to the episode. So post us on Instagram and tag me on radio, hashtag or me at Nick Onkin, And we'd love to see that. Also, I am very excited to keep bringing you more amazing guests on the show to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. So with that, I bid you adieu, and we'll see you next time.